Welcome to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest today is Michelle Stewart, CEO of the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation. In this episode, Michelle tells us about brain cancer as a condition, the work of the foundation, and how she became its CEO. Along the way, Michelle also talks about some interesting issues the foundation's had to deal with over the last couple of years, including a parting of the way with high-profile neurosurgeon Dr. Charlie Teo, and a focus on the foundation's running costs and administration costs in particular. These are both really interesting issues to me because dealing with an issue in the the public arena um, is a very difficult challenge for any charity, but it's one that more charities are likely to face in the future, I think, as, as there's more focus on transparency and the work that they do. And the issue of administration costs and running costs for charities in general is also um, one that has very broad application, and we're going to see more and more focus on costs in the next few years, particularly as the Charity Commission um, sets out to make the sector more transparent and makes more data available to, to donors. We're going to see how donors uh, react to that and how well they can interpret the information that they're going to be given. And I hope that you'll agree with me that it's interesting to hear a charity CEO like Michelle talk about this issue and how it's been dealt with. Enjoy this episode of How I Did It. Hi Michelle, how are you? Great, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, do you want to just quickly tell us, tell us your role? So I am CEO of Cure Brain Cancer Foundation. Um, We're an Australian-based brain cancer organisation working globally to improve survival for people living with brain cancer. And can you tell us some of the facts um, about brain cancer and, um, and maybe how it compares to some of the other cancers um, that we hear more about, like breast cancer, for example? So what people don't realise is brain cancer kills more children than any other disease. It also kills more adults under 40 than any other cancer. And survival rates haven't shifted for over 30 years. So I think people are a bit surprised to hear those statistics. Um, We've seen diseases, other types of diseases like breast cancer and um, leukaemia having increased survival rates as a result of the focus and funding, um, and so the investment in um, the research. And so what we're hoping to do is replicate that research so that the outcomes in brain cancer change. And do you think, uh, do you think that some of the reason why it's not had the attention that maybe other forms of cancer have had is because, and you might put this in the category of stupid questions, but let's get it out of the way, that we used to refer to them as brain tumours, and it only seems to be a fairly recent thing where we talk about brain cancer. It, it, do you think that has anything to do with it? Well, yeah, I think there's a number of reasons why brain cancer hasn't received the focus and funding. One, the main reason really is that survival or outcomes is so um, dire. And so there aren't a whole lot of long-term survivors speaking about their experience and telling their story. So you can see some of the high-profile, you know, breast cancer survivors who are able to stand up and tell the story and create that advocacy Brain cancer hasn't really had those survivors who, who can do that. Back to your question about brain tumour versus brain cancer, I think what you're seeing there is something that we've worked really hard to do, which is align the messaging. So create a narrative and really get everybody aligned on that narrative. So I think previously 
you know, there was there were definitely people doing a lot of work in this space, but Pure Brain Cancer has made a dedicated effort to align people on the messaging, the narrative, the statistics, so that the message gets out there. And you kind of often hear people say, you're hearing a lot more about it these days, is it increasing? And the reality is that the incidence is not increasing, but the message is cutting through more than it has before. So what's happening there? Um, what's happening inside your organisation that's helping to get the message uh, out there? So when we um, went, started off Cure Brain Cancer, about five years ago, our board had a change in strategic direction and said, you know, if we actually want to in- increase outcomes in this disease, we can't just go on, you know, funding a single group in New South Wales. We need to work globally and we need to work out... Um, how we can actually intervene in the system and make a difference. So as a result, the board hired an amazing CEO called Catherine Stace, who then put a um, group of people together who had a lot of great skills. And, you know, one of the main... the, The first things that we needed to do was work out what the statistics are and work out exactly what the messaging is. And once we've done that, then we need to work out who else wants to talk about it and how we bring those people together. So how as the CEO have you been doing that since you've been in the chair? So for the last year, I think we probably had a big um, change in the brain cancer environment. So we have gone from a year ago being what we would call a forgotten cancer to now one of the national health priorities. And it's been, a, it's been an amazing a year but also a difficult year so we needed to um, we worked with the government um, we now have got a hundred million dollar government backed plan to improve survival for brain cancer but we also have focus and funding for the first time um, for, for brain cancer and the I guess consistent with what I was saying before it was really important this year to align people on messaging If we had fragmentation within the space and differences of opinions or we were all calling for different things, there is no way that we would have ended up with a single plan. So the challenge for Cure Brain Cancer and for me this year has been to really bring together the organisation and the community along a a single message. And our communications team have done a really amazing job of that. So our approach is really two-pronged. We... Um, fund innovative research, but we also believe in the, pa- the patient power, the power of the brain cancer community. And we've really harnessed that power over the year, the, this year to create a movement that, was, that, that people couldn't ignore. And I think the um, community and the Senate Select Inquiry that also um, recently happened as well, it was really important for us to, one, bring, get the Senate Inquiry up so that people could air their... Um, their thoughts, but also make sure everyone was aligned on messaging. It's so important, isn't it? Because when you talk at the start there about um, survival rates, um, I think that I don't think people would realise that. You, know, you talk about um, how significant that is in terms of children in Australia. I just don't think people are, are aware of that. So, do you, do you think there's a lot more awareness still to go? Is that a big part of your plan? We absolutely think there's a lot more awareness to go. Um, We think that people are understanding it a little bit more, but still, it's still relatively... um, Oh, well, it it still hasn't got any increases in survival. So, you know, I have young children and I kind of think if somebody gets diagnosed today, we haven't done enough. So there is so much that we need to do still. And there's obviously raising the awareness, but also converting that awareness into action, whether it be policy change, systems change. There's a number of activities that we have to then pull the awareness through. 
to see change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've got a plan for that change, haven't you? So do you want to talk about that? Because um, that, that would... I think that's really interesting from a strategic point of view that yes. you've gone out there as an organisation and um, and you've made a fairly bold um, objective, um, the centrepiece of your strategy. That's my take on it. Can you tell us about that? So our mission is to improve survival from 20% to 50% by the year 2023. Yeah. And, and you're smiling when you say that. <laughs> I am absolutely smiling when I say that because, you know, some people go, that's outrageous, that will never happen. Um, but we believe that having that bold mission has really um, given us the direction that we need to, to make the decisions that we have made strategically. So what I can tell you about developing drugs is it costs $2.56 billion to get, on average, a drug from discovery to a patient. It also takes 8 to 12 years. So we're talking about the fact that we want to see the see survival shift in 10 years, so a 10-year goal. Um, in order to do that, we can't be working within the current bounds of the current system. We need to see systems change. So the days of isolation and fragmentation um, are now, are now appear to be, I think, increasingly to those in, in, in and around the charitable sector. Um, uh, they appear to be days that should be behind us. Um, but you're putting yourselves out there, I, I guess, saying that you are part of the solution to that and yep. you're about systems change yep. and collaboration. Um, why do you think that, that, that you're best placed as a charity to do that when you're dealing with big pharmaceutical, you're dealing with um, the health system, you're dealing with government as well, and they're a lot bigger? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I think the thing that positions us most appropriately to actually get involved in that space is that we've got a vested interest. We reflect the needs of the patients that are our constituency, um, the patient community. So nobody cares more about brain cancer than our community. There's obviously people who care, if you tell them about it, they care about it, but we, the, the, the kind of our raison d'etre or the reason that we exist is to work for those patients. We are never going to have the deep pockets like the governments or the pharmaceutical companies, but we are prepared to take on the higher risk type activities. So that's seed funding that is required. And um, that, that's exactly what we have done. So five years ago, we were funding two projects in a single lab in New South Wales. We're now funding 35 projects, including over 250 co um, collaborators across four continents. So we've really changed the way that we've realigned incentives for people to work together and we believe that that is the way that will break down barriers and actually accelerate these outcomes. Now what about your journey to this position because um, you know, this podcast uh, and the series is, is how I did it. So how did you get um, from where you started out in your career to be um, the CEO of a charity like this? So I've always had, I haven't had a linear career path. I've never decided I wanted to be a something. Mm. I've always known that I really cared about health, human health and improving people's, um, you know, con condition. And it sounds a bit funny looking back about it now, but I remember at school I really wanted to cure cancer and it was such a naive idea. And I thought, I love science, I'll, do, I'll jump into science. And I studied science at university and I thought, this is amazing, this is me, this is going to be me. And then I did it and I thought, I really like the subject matter, but I don't think that I am cut out for work in a lab. I preferred to kind of work with lots of people and so I thought, well, that was great. That was me. That was me done. So then I moved into other areas. I moved into telecoms. I went overseas and, you know, worked in banking, came back to Australia and worked in banking. thought it was great. 
um, really enjoyed that as well, loved the people aspect, but I wasn't satisfied. So I went back and did a Masters of Public Health at night time and thought, I've got to get back into health. And then I moved into the next role, which I guess was perfect for me at that point in time. That role was head of business development for a clinical research organisation. So they did outsourced clinical um, research. And my role was to bring clinical trials to Australia. So I just loved and felt so passionate about making sure that my friends and family had access to treatments that they were available anywhere else in the world. Clinical trials is a way of accelerating treatments to patients years before they become available um, publicly. So I loved that and I would travel overseas and I would go and talk to pharmaceutical companies or groups who were running clinical trials and make sure that they brought sites back to Australia so that Australian hospitals could be involved. And that was brilliant and I loved it. The travel after about seven years um, grew on me, but I also realised that people were having the same conversations for that whole period of time. So clinical trials hadn't changed and they would, everyone was doing things the same way that they'd always done them. And it was kind of, I kind of didn't sit well. So I had to kind of think to myself, what is the next frontier? What is that frontier going to be to improve human health? And I was very fortunate to work with a group of people doing a startup under this big clinical research organisation to harness patient populations. So it was basically creating online populations of patients to, to transform disease outcomes. And we ended up with 2.5 million patients worldwide who were on this database. And then you could then harness those groups to provide feedback about their disease type and their condition. And I guess I kind of thought that's where the pressure on the system of clinical trials is going to be. It's going to be on the patient's propensity to accept risk as well as their desire to see the outcomes. And you can see from the 1970s, the HIV movement, where the HIV patients took higher risks and mm. they also um, joined together to create an advocacy movement to change the outcomes of a disease. And I guess that's the long way of saying, I then came across the opportunity of cure brain cancer. And I met um, the CEO at the time and I thought, I actually think that there's a real opportunity here. It's an underserved disease. There's people, there's no shift in survival the way things are going, there won't be for many, many years. There's no critical mass or voice or advocacy. So I could see a real opportunity to um, really transform brain cancer outcomes. And um, when I first took it on, I thought, I'll go to a charity. This will be a great time in my life. I'm pretty exhausted from travel. I will add a little bit of value. It'll be really great and I'll help the world out and it'll be quite easy. <laughs> and I have never worked so hard in my entire life and I feel so naive and I can't even believe I'm admitting to it right now but I think a lot of people think that that working oh, for a charity is abso easy. Absolutely I mean, my, my work you know I meet a lot of people in the sector and involved in the sector and um, yeah it's a lot of people out there have a misconception that it's an easier ride. Um, there are two types of people I know whose, whose work is probably under appreciated outside of the family home uh, and they are people who work in, in you know, senior positions in charities and people who work three days a week. Because the people that work three days a week seem to work five days a week and get paid for three. <laughs> <laughs> so but, I started off working in a senior role in a charity three days a week and I, that pretty quickly wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. So exactly, that, that proves the point. Um, interesting that you're saying that in that last answer about um, deciding what you didn't want to do. Because I, I think as I've, as I've got older in my career, whenever someone asks me about what they should do next in a, in a career sense, 
I usually find myself saying, we'll start with working out what you've learned you don't want to do. The path yep. to what you want to do is often um, defined by what you don't want to do, or at least it helps you take out a whole load of potential options uh, and narrow it down. So obviously that was, that was true for you. And um, whilst you said that you didn't have a, uh, and I think a lot of people are in this category, you didn't have a clear plan that I'm going to start my career and I'm, I'm going to try and get there. Yeah. You've obviously had to build up um, skills and experiences to be able to do the job that you do now. So um, how did you acquire them? How did you build your skill set? And what, what are the skills and experiences that you bring to the role now? Yeah, so I did take myself on a bit of a graduate recruitment program in my life. I basically decided I needed to work for corporate, I needed to work for government, I needed to work for different types of sectors so that I had a broad range of experience. Right, so that was a deliberate. Um, you didn't know, you didn't have a particular job in mind, but you thought I need that rounded perspective, presumably. 100%. I decided that I didn't know anything until I knew a tiny bit about mm. a lot of things. Mm. And... I think, I think that was probably the experience that has been most valuable in this role because I understand the drivers from a number of our stakeholders. Working in you know, something complex like changing disease outcomes, you actually have to work with a number of stakeholders and there is the government and there are corporates and there are lots of different groups and you need to understand what their corporate objectives are. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand um, where they're at. That's probably the biggest skill that I think I have brought to the role and that has really served me well. Well, this idea of um, understanding what it's like on the inside having been there, I think is really important and it's relevant to um, the foundation, I think, because um, you've had recently this um, episode where people have questioned um, some of the administration costs and other issues, which is all tied into a parting of ways with um, Charlie Teo, mm -hmm. um, which has been, in, in our space, has been quite well um, quite well publicised. Now, um, one of the issues with that that I have that I want to talk to you about is when we think about things like admin costs, people outside the sector, and this is my opinion, have a very low level of understanding of what um, role they play. Now, this is my opening statement. <clears throat> Administration costs can represent waste, but they can in any organisation. If you run a cafe or a bank or you know a home, but at the same time, they may be absolutely critical drivers that underpin the work that you do. And you mentioned before, um, amongst other things, that your communications team is doing a great job to, get, to help put you in a position to do more to help more people, right? But that communications team and the communications that they write and the photocopier that spits out what they produce and so on, the electricity that produces, you know, that you use to produce emails and so on, that all has a cost, yep. right? And so administration is almost um, impossible to avoid. Sometimes people will say that they don't, they don't have administration costs, but what you find behind that is that somebody else is paying. That's right? Somebody else is underwriting that yep. cost. <clears throat> um, so can you just talk about um, your thoughts on that, and then we'll talk about how the organisation, how you as the CEO, responded to that whole, that yep. whole scenario as it played out. Yeah, so look, it's a difficult, it was a, a difficult situation. Administration, as you say, is a catch-all. People put different types of classifications into administration costs. The reality is good administration equals good governance and anybody who's not having any, having any costs, they're either not doing anything or, as you say, someone else is paying. There's, ne there's never any opportunity in a business for it to cost them nothing to run. Everybody mm -hmm. knows that. Yeah. So 
Uh, the way that our costs are broken down is 62% of our costs goes to the cause, which is research, advocacy and awareness. So as you mentioned, the advocacy and awareness teams, they led to the $100 million fund that we just got up and we wouldn't have done that without those costs, incurring those costs. 23% of our costs is for fundraising. And fundraising is really important so that we can actually raise more for the cause. Every $1 we invest in fundraising go, um, raises $4. Right. So there's a direct, and this is kind of one of the points I want to touch on, there is a direct link between cost and impact. Absolutely. Right. Well, and that's what's often lost in the debate, isn't it? Where people say, well, look at that. That must yep. mean this. Well, not necessarily, right? That, that fundraising is an essential cost, but it's also, you could say, an investment in better it's outcomes for people. hundred percent investment in better outcomes for people. And I think, I mean, it's very good to be clear with what how your costs are broken down mm. and all that kind of thing. But as you say, the link between cost and impact, it's the impact that matters. We want to see an outcome. And I, I think that's how charities should be measured. They shouldn't be measured, what's your administration line? So our administration line is 15% for administration, and that's been independently um, verified um, last year um, by um, William Buck. And, and it's really important to have that verification, but the reality is, what are we achieving? And if we had zero administration, we were achieving nothing, does that mm. make us a good charity? Yeah, that's right. I would argue that I actually think people living with brain cancer deserve for us to achieve impact. But the problem that happened last year was that um, People made claims about administration costs and, you know, cast negative aspersions on, a, on our charity. It was misleading information to start off with. Mm. But also, you know, the, the, we, ca we can't actually run with no cost and we have, to, we have to get this $100 million fund up, all that kind of stuff. But, it's, but I just want to come back to this point of um, costs are unavoidable, right, costs are uh, unavoidable. as a general statement, right? Um, and we know about things like um, the importance of volunteers and the contribution they can make, and that's huge in Australia. We've got yep. a great culture of that. But it's not a substitute um, to run a, a proper enterprise that's right. um, that is trying to grow and, and, and grow because it wants to help yep. more people. Yet, a lot of people would say, a lot of people in the, uh, in the public would say, um, it's the 62% goes to the cause. A lot of people would say, but I want the rest to go to the Absolutely. cause. Absolutely. The bit I'm trying to get to is, um, the reality is that the remainder of that percentage is really all designed to help the cause anyway. Uh, uh, right? Exactly. That's the point. So it's not like 62 goes to the cause. And the rest doesn't. And the rest doesn't. The rest yeah, Just talk about it. that from your point of view as so, a CEO, because that must be I feel quite strongly about this. So, yes, the 62 is the cause. But if we are not fundraising, we could kind of tick along at a million dollars a year and not mm. achieve anything. But if we truly are committed and believe that we've got the right strategy in place, why wouldn't we try to raise money so that more money goes in and that impact is felt um, much strong, stronger? Also, the administration. Like, I want to make sure that we're looking after donors' money properly, that there's yeah. good governance around that. So when we do run events, which is both um, engaging the community and also fundraising, that the money is being handled properly and mm. we're looking after these things, we're managing our projects well. Yeah. That's a really important thing. You know, If we're going to give money to people to deliver an outcome, we need to be monitoring that and managing that. So the administration actually is 100% ensuring the outcomes. Right. So and um, <clears throat> transparency costs money, right? Everyone wants yes. transparency Absolutely. as well. 
So whilst you incur costs, you then need to do accounts That's and right. you need to have those accounts audited because it's good governance and pe- people expect you to be able to show where their money has gone. Yes. Right? Now, um, we're coming into a, uh, an era under the current charity commissioner, Gary Johns, where transparency is going to be even more important because he has set out an agenda that says, I'm going to show the donor how their money is spent. I have deep concerns around that as much as I think it's super important because, as I said, I don't think enough um, of the donor community understands how to interpret the figures that they, that they might see. And this is the conversation we're having, right, about about um, the true value of some of the costs um, that are incurred. But the, the accounts you're going to have to pay for, the audit you're going to have to pay for, right? So how do you communicate that um, to people in terms of value? Because they are going to struggle with that. I, I completely agree. And so if charities are measured, again, just th- purely about their cost breakdown, what's going to be the corresponding impact measurement? So will there be an equal impact measurement for them to compare against? Or will people just be bu- bu- um, judging charities on their breakdown of costs? I would personally believe that you actually want to um, support a charity that is achieving the impact that they said that they're going to achieve or that you're interested in. It's like any investment. You're not just going to invest in a company because of their, do- their dollars are allocated here internally. You actually want them to achieve an outcome. Mm, that's right. My take, my bet is that um, you're going to have to do that yourselves. And I don't mean just you. I mean any, yep. any charity yep. leader that's thinking about this issue um, it's gonna it's gonna rest on their shoulders to tell the story the right way. Um, I think that the information that will be available that people will will look at to make their decisions will just be on the factual side, and you won't have the context. So if you're going to provide the context, my guess is it's going to have to come from the organisation, which it costs additional communication thing, which costs money. Exactly it right. Costs a lot more money. So we've got to be. I think we need to change the narrative to make sure we're actually measuring charities on what they're achieving. Yeah, which is very difficult because it's not um, always easy to um, to put that into dollars, dollars and cents, right? But that's that's a whole conversation um, in and of itself. So, yes. um, just going back to the scenario, particularly because the high profile part of it, besides than the costs, was um, was Charlie Teo's departure to go down a different path after being involved with the organisation. Yeah. Uh, and establish his own organisation. Um, ha- that feels important from an industry point of view because you talked about fragmentation and collaboration and so yes. on. But um, but obviously this is a kind of this is a, a part of the ways. Uh, you know, as a start point, is it? Do you see it as um, Core Brain Cancer Foundation in one corner in the the fight against brain cancer and Charlie Teo in the other, or do you actually see? the potential for you to work together uh, in some way in the future? Yeah, so Professor Teo stepped off the Cure Brain Cancer Board over two years ago. He left um, He left the board and over that period of time, I guess, he'd been involved and come back to events now and then. Um, he has now set up his own foundation to do his own thing. Um, over that period of time in the last, last two years, we collaborate with everybody. We collaborate with every other brain cancer organisation in, in Australia, but also internationally. Mm. And not just brain cancer, because there's a lot to be gained from collaborating with other different um, disease charities, and we do that a lot. Mm. So I think when it comes to cancer, there's no such thing as um, competition for yeah. um, someone who's facing a lethal diagnosis. Mm. Um, we will continue to work together because, well, with everybody because we see that collaboration is 
the only way that we're going to achieve outcomes. Um, it will take a team. It takes a team to um, work together. Basically, with one cancer patient, you can see the number of people that are involved, but also the number of charities that are involved. So I don't, um, don't see any competition mm. as such, but we do need to make sure that the market is not fragmenting because then we just get back to where we started from. That's right. Yeah, Which I mean, there's the idea of cooperation, though, right? Because this is a place that immediately hear a lot in the charitable sector where people compete in, you know, for awareness and funding, and so, so there is that element, yeah. which um, people who've got the condition aren't really um, thinking about it. That's not, that's not what they're concerned about. Um, and donors might not be thinking about that, but those in the industry have to think about, right? Um, and you see it a lot, particularly um, with some of the other cancers where there are an awful lot of organisations. Yeah. There's no doubt that they compete in, in some way. Um, but there's the ability to collaborate and communicate and share, and that, I think, everybody who supports the organisation or who benefits from it, yeah. that's probably their number one question, right? So, you, so I think your answer is, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that that is an essential part of the future for you is to work with those groups, not just within the cancer community, but other, other diseases and other areas of health where you might be able to learn or leverage what you do. But in the brain cancer space, we need to be aligned on messaging. If yeah. we are okay. um, fragmented on messaging, the whole message loses yep. its, um, its currency. And so for us, that is very, very important. But we definitely are going to continue to work with all the other organisations because it takes a team. And here's the thing, um, when we come back, uh, we'll leave cost behind after this really, but um, advocacy therefore is very important in raising awareness, but guess what, there's a cost involved in that. And um, that's not part of your 62% that goes to the cause, but yet it's a, it's a perfect example of how actually that is about helping the cause. It's just not in maybe the most direct way that people could imagine. Yeah, so I mean, our advocacy absolutely goes to the cause. So in terms of the government advocacy, it led to the $100 million fund. So that is yeah. directly the cause. There's also other types of patient advocacy that we can do. For example, they might be unhappy with their treatment or there might be ways that we can improve their treatment. So we use patient advocacy to actually change smaller parts of the system. Mm. So we see that as very, very much business critical. But yes, it absolutely incurs a cost. Yep, that's right. We'll leave cost behind, like I said. A couple of final questions um, back to you and how you, how you have done or do things. Um, so we'll finish that issue around... Um, uh, uh, what we've just spoken about there with, with Charlie Teo and so on. How did you deal with that as a CEO? So you got an issue like that. Uh, stakeholders around you, internal staff, um, the media and the need to, to put the facts out there. How did you do that? So I think it was really important to know for, for us to know as an organisation that we are doing a really good job. We had just had the announcement of the Australian Brain Cancer Mission, the first priority from the um, Medical Research Future Fund, and, you know, we, we know over periods of time we've seed-funded great projects and we're in a really good spot. My first, um, I guess, action was to reassure the staff and the board that we've done a really great job to basically say, you know, if we were not structured the way we are, there is no way that we would see brain cancer being a number one health priority. Mm. There is no way that we would be funding the 35 projects with 250 collaborators around the world. Mm -hmm. There is no way that we would not have, that we would have been able to achieve these activities if we'd not done what we had done. Yeah. So I think, you know, it creates a lot of um, distress, probably, for mm. all of us, um, for the staff, um, and but also the community. So one of the biggest issues was the brain cancer community. They were all of a sudden kind of devastated. They didn't know what was going on. Mm. So we had to go through... Um, 
lots of um, a process to basically keep them informed of what the actual situations were. The first thing we had to do was clarify that the information that was being told was wrong and explain a cost breakdown, but then also explain what we have achieved with the community's support. The thing about working in the not-for-profit space is that you have such a significant stakeholder base. We have 800 to 1,000 volunteers. We've got a number of people living with brain cancer, communities, families, all these people who needed to know what the reality was. And I guess it kind of took us took us a bit of time to be able to communicate with all those people. And to be honest, we have probably not been able to get the message out as well as, well as yeah. we would have liked. Um, well, it's, you, I'm sure you're not um, Robinson Crusoe there because that, you know the power of the media is such, and social media is that um, it's really easy to amplify a message, but then if you want to kind of Correct. show another side, yeah. you don't always um, get the full opportunity, do you? But, um, so that w- that's probably was the biggest challenge. Yeah, okay. Um, but essentially, what I take from what you said is that you quickly pivoted towards um, all of your stakeholders inside and out yeah. and tried to reassure people and um, give them the facts. And, um, and and the other thing I found interesting there, which I think I can see would be, would be really valuable, true, is that you had to start by saying, well, let's just remind ourselves that we're doing good work and that we're actually on, you know, on a good path here, yeah. right? Now, um, $100 million fund's been mentioned a couple of times. Yes. And I'm guessing that certain people um, listening might say, well, great, problem solved. I don't need to fund you anymore. I'm saying this, uh, you know, a little bit um, as a leading question, but is, is that true? Absolutely. Well, everyone keeps thinking, yeah, it's done. Well, not everybody. <laughs> Some people go, so I guess you're done now. We are so far from done. I think the benefit of the um, fund is that we now have focus and funding, but it's the focus that I think is really important. So what we've got is a central research strategy for the country, um, which we need to deliver. We, um, the group We had a roundtable meeting, and at that roundtable meeting, people identified the activities that we needed to take. The um, $100 million is, uh, doesn't go to us, doesn't come say, to it's us not sitting in your bank by account. any so stretch. From a fundraising perspective, people shouldn't think that you're now sitting on $100 million. No, we have clear. committed $20 million of that $100 million. So we actually need to raise that money now. What I see is an unprecedented opportunity for us to really make an impact in this disease by funding along this centralised research mm. strategy. It'll cost a lot more than $100 million, there is no doubt, but it is a great start and they've just replicated the same round table for brain cancer in the UK and they've raised a 45, 46 million pound um, fund mm-hmm. to do the same thing. So we hope that that can roll out globally and we still absolutely need to fundraise more than ever because now we actually all have a centralised plan and if that yeah. can become a global plan, that's very powerful. Yeah, terrific. Well, um, it's it sounds very exciting. It sounds like for the first time in many years, there's uh, a fresh opportunity at scale to do something that might um, save a lot of lives, frankly. And so um, I hope that works out really well over the next couple of years for you and everybody else. That was a really important point, actually. Scale is really important. So we believe that we do need to have that scale. We don't need to be extremely large, but we need to be influential enough so that that scale is achieved. Well, hopefully that, as I say... um, that comes to pass and uh, it's very very important work so thanks for taking time out from it to talk to us today thank you thank you 
That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.